Hey, this morning I have two quotes. Um, and I, I want to do one at the first, and then I've got one at the end. Uh, the one at the end is the classic quote in apologetics, and it comes from C.S. Lewis. Um, but I want to close my sermon with that uh, this morning. Um, if you haven't been here, <clears throat> uh, uh, bless your heart. Uh, I, <laughs> this is going to feel like a fire hydrant today. But anyhow, <clears throat> it's coming at you hot. Um, we've been talking about a reason to believe. And uh, it's my burden as a pastor that we more and more live in a culture that uh, needs to hear us defend our faith. And we need to have a rational, reasonable uh, response, defense of the gospel and Christianity. And we've walked through uh, the existence of God. Do we have reason to believe the existence of God? And uh, do we believe that we are here as a product of an evolutionary process or God is our creator? We've talked about the Bible. Do we have reason to believe? And, oh, we've talked about a bunch of other things. Uh, the first quote this morning comes, uh, this is a quote from Pliny the Younger, and it ties into my sermon this morning. Uh, this is a letter that Pliny the Younger, who is a governor in Asia Minor in Bithynia, he writes to Emperor Trajan in the Roman Empire about how to deal with Christians. And they're being persecuted and they're actually being put to death. And there's more to the letter, but let me just read this, uh, sections of it. And so he, this is the governor writing to the emperor with, this is how I'm dealing with it and I'm looking for your advice. He says, I ask them if they are Christians. If they admit it, I repeat the question a second and a third time, threatening capital punishment. If they persist, I sentence them to death. Now this is, I'm sorry, I meant to tell you that this is in the year 112. This is just a couple decades after the last apostle John has died. And Christianity has blown up the Roman emperor's empire's wondering how to deal with this, but they're putting them to death. He says, though, he goes on, he says, all who deny that they were or had been Christians, I consider to be discharged because they call upon the gods at my dictation and did reverence with incense and wine to your image, which I had ordered to be brought forward for this purpose, together with the statutes of the deities and especially because um, they cursed Christ, a thing which it is said genuine Christians cannot be induced to do. Later he says, but they declared that the sum of their guilt or error had amounted only to this, that on, a, on an appointed day, they had been accustomed to meet before daybreak and to recite a hymn responsively to Christ as to a God. 
and to bind themselves by an oath not for the commission of any crime but to abstain from theft robbery and adultery very significant what Pliny the Younger says of the Christians in 112 is that they gathered on a set day of the week and they sang hymns to Christ as to a God Jesus and his followers claimed that Jesus was God. There is no other religion who has a leader who claimed to be God. My question this morning is that do we have a reason to believe that Jesus was God? And obviously if he is God, it puts him in a whole other category from any other religious leader who has ever walked this earth. To frame it in last week's terms, the man that we encounter on the road that we cannot go around, we cannot dismiss, and I, I gave you seven reasons why I believe we have to deal with this man who is standing in the middle of the road. Is that man who stands in the middle of the road God? Now, the opposing worldview would contend that Jesus was just a man and that his deity was simply a myth which developed centuries after he walked this earth. Just a man. His followers developed this myth uh, that he was God. Uh, centuries later, and the reason I read, I read from you, for you, Pliny the Younger, is because in 112, not centuries later, even the Roman government knew that they worshipped Jesus as God early on. Uh, other world religions would teach that Jesus was a great prophet, but that he was not uniquely God and I want to come back to that term uniquely God today we are confronted philosophically with this question was Jesus of Nazareth God um To think about that initially is, is mind-blowing. At first glance, it appears to be an audacious claim. A claim that no other religion makes. That Jesus, we believe that 
our religious leader, if you want to call him that, was God himself who had come in the flesh. At first glance, you go, okay, wait, wait a second. That's so, if you're just looking at it philosophically, rationally, reasonably, you just say, okay, that, that's beyond anything. That's so bizarre. I would contend today that our previous discussions about the existence of God, about God being our creator uh, and the Bible actually have set us up for this and that actually Jesus being God is rationally consistent with the other deductions we have made previously uh, as we've looked at the existence of God, uh, God being creator and the scripture. Um, I want you to think just before we, we delve into some things I want you to think about being rationally consistent um, and the reality is is it's not just when you have the question that first question does God exist that you you, uh, you have to make some decisions and to say what does the evidence point to but there are other things that fill in the gaps that set us up for today when we look at this man and say, is he really God? And so there are some things that we've already really deduced from the evidence that sets us up. And in fact, I would say the deity of Jesus is in line with what we have already come to conclusions about. We talked about we, we didn't use these terms, but we talked about the uniqueness of God. And what I mean by that is that God was the first cause. That God, and not even defined at that point in that sermon, there had to be this immaterial, timeless, absolute first cause for all that exists. And, and so really what we did, we eliminated some things. When we come to the place and said there had to be this unique first cause... We eliminated polytheism, which says there's many gods. It's not rational. You can't start with many gods. No, there has to be a uniqueness to the God. It's only rational. It, it eliminates pantheism, which would say everything is God. No, that's not rationally coherent and cohesive. It brings us actually to monotheism. It is rational to believe what the Bible teaches, but even if you don't believe the Bible philosophically to look at it and say, no, it's, it's rational. In fact, uh, these things that I describe here are all things that if you will read Augustine and C.S. Lewis and their pursuit uh, to, to come to this understanding of, of a Christian worldview is Augustine and C.S. Lewis pass through all these phases. In fact, they, they come out of the, a Christian context and they, they look for anything else that makes rational sense to the world that they see. And they go through all of these other religions and all the others, and, and none of it, what, what Augustine and C.S. Lewis would say, none of it was as cohesive and coherent a perspective as Christianity. And it starts with this idea of the uniqueness of God, the monotheism. But also, it's only rational to believe when, when we talked about God, uh, we, 
the complexity of God. And so we come to the issue today that if Jesus is God and God is God and the Holy Spirit is God, then God is a triunity. He is a trinity. But that makes rational sense, actually. Because when we look at God as being creator and we look at the complexity of the world, to think that our minds could comprehend the nature of God is irrational. No, what would we expect to find? We would expect to find a God who is beyond human comprehension, right? Because he created us. And in fact, you, you, you look at us, and if I had to uh, just give you maybe, oh, just a little bit of a sense of the Trinity. If you think about, when we talked about this uh, for us as human beings, there is a, there's a metaphysical dimension to us that is apart from nature that we are not only body, but we are also a mind, but we also have a soul, a will, a spirit, whatever you want to call it. So I can sit here and I have a body, but I also have a mind. I can close my eyes and not see my body. Yeah, anyhow, that's, that's mind-blowing. Uh, and I can just think in my mind, uh, I don't really know what the point I was making there, but anyhow, my mind has an existence of my mind. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I just lost myself there. But, but there is something even else to my, who I am as a person and I have a soul, a will that is actually a part as d distinct from my mind. And so if you think about human beings, there is a complexity of body and mind, and soul, or spirit, whatever you want to call it, but it's all one, right? If you eliminate any of that, you eliminate the one. And so, if you think about it, that's who we are, then who would our creator be? Surely he would have greater complexity than even we have, and so it would make sense that you would find complexity in God what we would call it, the Trinity. Uh, oh my. But you know, also one of the other things we talked about was we talked about God having a personal nature. So we, we walk away from deism, which believes that God is just this inanimate force, impersonal, uh, because we, we look at the human world as being fine-tuned for human existence. Therefore, it leads us rationally to the place to say that God intended us to have a relationship with our creator because he created the world uh, for human beings and made us in his image. And so it's, uh, and it's reasonable to conclude that God is a personal God and therefore if he made the world for human existence that he would want to engage mankind, he would, he would enter into their human existence. One other thing I want to say, and then I have to press on. If God is the God of uniqueness, complexity, and of a personal nature, we also have to believe rationally in his, the reliability of his revelation. That if God ever revealed himself, <laughs> no, it's going to be perfect. And so it would be irrational to think that that, that kind of God who create, create this existence in our world and all of this dynamics, all this would create something that was inaccurate. 
That's not rational, actually. And so I'm saying all of that lays a groundwork. When we come today, all of those are factors that help us that it's not just out of the blue that the man that we encounter in the road would be God. No, actually it's in line. Actually it's, the phrase I would use is rationally consistent. Augustine and C.S. Lewis tried everything else but only in Christianity, these great minds said, the only worldview, even if you don't, religion, philosophical system, that was coherent and cohesive to explain human existence and experience. Um, Jesus and his followers claimed that Jesus was God. Um, Jesus demonstrated it uh, in his own words, and I'm going to run through these. Um, some people would say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. It's not true. Uh, in Mark, y'all are going to have to think quickly with me this morning. <laughs> Jesus demonstrated his deity in his own words. In Mark 14, at the trial, uh, Mark 14, 61, it says, this is the trial among the religious leaders. It says, but he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus, notice carefully his words here. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Notice the response. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving death based on his own words. Jesus in this scripture says, he says in response to the high priest, I am Um, this was the Old Testament name for God when Moses was at the burning bush and said what is your name the voice said I am it is a claim of deity when Jesus answers I chuckle it's just funny to me I don't know um, in John Eight, Jesus says, before Moses was, I am. That'll mess with your grammar and tense and all of that. <laughs> and they took up stones to kill him. When Jesus talked about 
in this verse 62 when he talks about you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power, the Son of Man. To claim that he was, and we'll talk about this in just a minute, was the Son of God is to make him one with God. In John 10, he said, I and my Father are one. And once again, they took up stones to stone him. When Jesus says he will sit at the right hand of the power, he is, he is claiming deity. He is, he is claiming equality with God. He is claiming that he will be the judge in the end. He says, if men, if you will deny me before my father, I will deny you on that day. If he is not God, that is blasphemy. He puts himself in the seat of being the ultimate and final judge. By his own words, Jesus demonstrates his understanding, his belief that he was God. His teaching in authority denotes his deity. Uh, what did the old prophet say? Thus saith the Lord. Did Jesus ever say, thus saith the Lord? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. It is a claim of deity. By Jesus' miracles, he demonstrates his deity. Oh my, casting out demons, walking on water, healings, feeding of the five thousands. I don't know, there's dozens and dozens of them. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus forgives sins of a man who had done nothing against him in the human realm. A paralytic man is brought to Jesus and in Mark 2, 5, 6, and 7, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can, for, who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus demonstrates his deity by his own words, his teaching, his miracles, his forgiveness. The deity of Jesus is denoted by his titles. Jesus is called the Christ. Uh, the Hebrew word would have been more Messiah. In the Greek, it's Christ. Uh, the apostles in the New Testament speak of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, Peter, when Jesus asked in Mark, Matthew 16, But who do you say that I am? This is Matthew 16. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, Hebrew Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That is significant because in the Old Testament there is... Uh, there is this idea of the Messiah being God himself. And so in Isaiah 9, when it says, For unto you a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, that's okay. Then it says, Mighty God. 
everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The child will be called Mighty God. Um, in Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, when it talks about the forerunner coming, it says he will prepare the way for the Lord. The Lord will come into the temple when the Messiah comes. So the term, the title Messiah has a connotation of deity. The Son of God uh, from Psalm 2-7, uh, it, he's not a Son of God. Jesus is called the Son of God, the, on, the one and only. And so in Messianic terms from Psalm 2, he is the one uh, that has a unique relationship with God. And so Jesus prays to God as Father. Nobody else did that. And I know we do it, but we do it because we pray in Jesus' name. Because we're connected to the Son. Uh, the title Son of God has a connotation of deity because he is one with the Father, even as we saw in John 10 that he said, I and my Father are one. It is literally fulfilled in the virgin birth. Hmm, don't even have time to go there. It is an essential to the Christian faith because it connects Jesus with being God. How else would God take on human flesh? It is spoken by God the Father at his baptism. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Also the Mount of Transfiguration. The other title of Jesus is that he uses actually 80 times referring to himself as not the son of God. But Jesus invariably calls himself the son of man. And you say, oh, well, that's most scholars would take that or some scholars would take that as uh, a, a way of... Um, of Jesus, speaking of Jesus' humanity. But the problem with that is in Daniel 7, is which is what many believe it was in Jesus' mind when he talks about the Son of Man. When Daniel is speaking about the last days, he says, I was watching in the, in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed the son of man when Jesus uses that 80 times in the gospels surely in his mind he's thinking back to Daniel 7 and so Jesus deity is demonstrated in his own words his teaching his miracles his forgiveness of sins it's denoted by his titles Messiah Christ the Son of God, the Son of Man. It is proclaimed explicitly by his followers in the inspired scripture, the eyewitnesses, when John says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, maybe just 
a bookend at the end of John's gospel. We come to Thomas, who on the first time that Jesus appeared was not there. And Jesus comes back. Um, and it says in John 20, 27, Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The deity of Jesus is demonstrated by his own words, his teaching, his miracles, his forgiving sins. It is denoted in his titles, Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. It is proclaimed explicitly by his followers. Jesus and his followers claimed that he was God. And I believe it's rationally consistent with what we have said about the existence of God, God being creator, and his, and his word being a historically accurate uh, record of God's words and actions in human history. So C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, chapter 3, last paragraph. This is, this is, this is the quote of all quotes. Um... In, apolo in Christian apologetics. And it relates to Jesus and his deity. And it really boxes us in today to say we have to deal with it. This is what C.S. Lewis says, as only C.S. Lewis could have said it. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. This, is, this next line is funny to me, but I don't mean to laugh. It's very serious. He would either be a lunatic. This is the part I laugh at. C.S. Lewis. On a level with the man who says he is a poached egg. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell you must make your choice either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse you can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon 
or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Would you stand with me this morning? I say all that to say this, that for us to be rationally consistent in the road that we have walked into the place that we have come, I'm going to say to you today, you cannot take Jesus for who you want him to be. You will either take Jesus for who he claimed to be or you must walk away. And I believe what C.S. Lewis said, that's what Jesus intended. The man that we encounter on the road claimed to be God. Do we have reason to believe that? Yes, we do. And C.S. Lewis came to the place in his life looking for every other way out. But the further he walked down that road, he said the most coherent and cohesive perspective of human life was that Jesus really was God. And he had to fall at his feet and call him Lord. And it's what we are called to do today also. And we have reason to do that. I want to pray. Um, and I want to say that at the end of the service, if you'd like to visit with me, I'm going to be at the front and um, we can visit about whatever you need to. But I'll be at the front. Uh, this is in lieu of understanding a traditional Baptist invitation. <laughs> it's where we are. We won't always be here. Um, we are going to have a short family conference. We need, to, we need to do some things. So we're going to, after I pray, we're going to take a short break. Uh, two to three minutes. There are handouts in the foyer. Come back. We won't be long. Um, so let me pray today. Father, today we, um, we thank you that Jesus loved us enough to be that unique, complex, personal, loving God who came in the flesh. Father, because we had been in rebellion against you and you came to find us in the most perfect way and we thank you for that and we pray as we surrender our lives to you that Father we would find true life not only here on this earth but for eternity and so Father we, we thank you for what you've done 
And uh, we pray that you'd, you'd fill us with your life today. And we thank you for our time today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.